0: surmised, at least, that Israel crossed the Red Sea on the seventh day and literally then was out of Egypt, which symbolized sin. So we've always recognized uh, Egypt as a symbol of sin. What sin? Is there a particular sin? What does that mean? So we saw that uh, Mitzrium... Uh, is a representative of Egypt, Mitzrium being a son of Ham. But there were other sons, uh, one of which was Canaan, which is central to the story as well, because Israel had a relationship throughout history with Mitzrium and with Canaan. But, or Foote and uh, Cush, perhaps not so much. I think Cush probably stayed pretty much in Africa, and maybe it was Phut who went to India, and is there to this day in southern India. Uh, So let's backtrack quickly through the story and add a few things to it as we go through and see if we can figure out where this ends up and what the symbolism is today. Uh, Is it fair to call call Egypt, I mean we can think of that as a country somewhere, Is it fair to call a people, Mitzrium in this case, and Canaan and all the sons of Ham, the Hamitic race, sin? Sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? Well, let's see why God put that appellation there. What is the purpose and what is the outcome in the finality of all this? Because I don't want to knock, if you please, any certain people. Uh, Remember that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, beginning with Adam and Eve, and on forward. But for reasons of His own, God has done certain things, and He has caused a certain symbolism to go with the sins of the various peoples. They came to symbolize that because perhaps it was their worst or primary sin as opposed to some others that they may have had. Alright, let's begin the story again in Genesis 2. Uh, We know Adam and Eve in the garden. And I, I will try to summarize these very quickly so that we get a big overall picture, not the details at this point. But what happened? Satan came and caused them to commit the sin that he had first committed. He broke the first and great commandment, put himself ahead of God. He did the exact same thing to Adam and Eve and caused them to put him and what he had to say and themselves and their desires ahead of God. So the primary sin in the Garden of Eden, even though it included others lying and so on, the primary sin was the first and great commandment, idolatry. Okay? Then we go to Genesis 6. And God looked at the earth and he said, Oh, no. Mankind's thoughts, all his thoughts, from day and night are nothing but evil continually. He cites violence and murder. He cites, and this is a key that we may have overlooked, his way was being forsaken. So, whatever ramifications that may have in terms of all kinds of sins, it was the way of God that was being forsaken and the way of Satan that was being accepted. What is that? That is idolatry. The first and great commandment had been broken habitually from Adam down until the days of Noah. So, God wiped man out, save one righteous man, and His sons, their wives, and Noah's wife, eight souls. Uh, Idolatry was the problem. Genesis 9, uh, we have right after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. There is a genealogy given of those tribes or of those peoples. The only one that has the length of times in the succession is of Shem. That's interesting. Why not Ham? Why not Japheth? Because God chose Shem to carry through with for his own purpose, which we will see. Now, at the beginning of this, before the genealogies are even approached, there was a flashback sin of what had been before the flood. It's what started things off in a negative way again. And we went through the story of Canaan of either having an affair with Noah's wife, or maybe even a homosexual affair with Noah himself when he was drunk. The details of that are neither here nor there at this point. The point is, they were going back to the selfishness and the idolatry that God had already wiped them out for. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, because of what had occurred there, and that he would become a... Uh, servant to Shem. And then when uh, Noah pronounced that curse on Canaan and said that he would be a servant of Shem, he also said blessed be the Lord God of Shem. What's the point here? Race? No. The point was Canaan had gone back to the same kind of idolatry that God had wiped mankind out for. Shem was listening to his father Noah and he still maintained the true one God. So the contrast of someone going godless into idolatry and Shem who was listening to Noah and was willing to follow the way of God. I'm here to tell you that the reason the numbers of Shem are listed and God went that direction is because they were the only ones at that point who had any desire or inkling to continue a relationship with Almighty God and put Him first and keep the first and great commandment. That's what it was all about. Then Nimrod, who was a uh, Canaanite, stood forth. He was a great leader of people, and yet he led them in the wrong direction. Here again you have the exact same problem cropping up. Uh, He and his mother worshipped himself as God. They built cities, which God is against. He wants us to have no house to house and no field to field. We're too close together even right here. That will be remedied at some point. Look at the dimensions of the New Jerusalem sometime and see the 144,000 are there and divide the cubic space up and you've got miles and miles of space for each person. Lots of room. That's the way God likes it. Anyway, Nimrod went the wrong way, and they committed idolatry with her worshipping Nimrod as God and he worshipping himself as God. So you have there the mother and child which was brought forth at that point and has come down through history, all through the ages, called different things at different times by different people, Isis and Osiris, whatever the name was in Egypt, Rome, Greece, or wherever. Nimrod is still the key figure, even in modern-day Christianity, which has accepted Easter and Christmas and all of those holidays which go back all the way to Nimrod and Semiramis. They are idolatrous holy days, and they symbolize idolatry. And that has continued through the time of Christ, until today and it has never let up. Let's see, where was I here? I, I do have notes. All right, then we come down to Abraham. Now Abraham married Hagar, who was of Mithraim, black, and had children, Ishmael uh, the key one there, who was half and half, half Semitic and half black. Uh, was intermarrying the problem? No. In fact, there really wasn't a problem, except a couple of women getting upset with each other. and You know, that happens. But the key is, Hagar did not pull Abraham away from God. Now, he married Keturah after Sarah died and married and had a lot of women, and then he had a lot of children. They were taught by Abraham, chapter 18, verse 19. I want to turn to that real quickly, but this is a key key thing. Genesis 18, even though he had Gentile children born of women of the land, apart from Israel, verse 19, God says that he is going to make Abraham a great and mighty nation, For I know him. Now wasn't that the key when God had him sacrifice Isaac? I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the eternal to do justice and judgment, that the eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So God figured his best shot and chance at having people who would not go into idolatry was to Abraham who would teach his children. Now, his Gentile children, or half-Gentile children, uh, when it came time for inheritance, he sent them east with gifts. Now, Abraham was not against intermarriage, if you will. He did it, okay, several times. But he knew God's purpose. He knew Shem. He knew Noah. He knew those men who were righteous and he followed in their footsteps in following God. And God made sure. But then, when Abraham understood that God was going to work through Sarah's child, which came as a miracle later on, to start the kingdom. Now, Ishmael would become a father of twelve princes and many people as well. But God wasn't going to work through Ishmael. God was going to work through Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He chose to do that once he really got to know Abraham. Now there's the reason, right there, that Abraham told his servant, go find a son, a a wife for my son Isaac, don't go to the Canaanites, go back to Haran, which is probably across the ocean at that point, and find one of my own people. Why? Because Shem had continued to worship the Lord God of Shem. Now, were they perfect in it? No. And did many individuals slip from that? I'm sure they had. But it was the only people on earth then who had some kind of relationship with God, and that's where Abraham wanted his children, the offspring of Isaac, to come from. So it was not racism in Abraham's mind. It was what God had chosen. Now, God gave Abraham a severe test, did he not, to see if Abraham would go into idolatry. We're going to see as we proceed here that other men were led into idolatry by marrying outside of Israel. Abraham was not. So God tested him on that very issue. He said, Take your son Isaac, whom I've given you, sacrifice him. Now, Abraham had waited a long time for that son, and that son had come through miracles, hadn't he? Now God said, Do you put that son ahead of me? He tested him on the first and great commandment. Isn't that incredible? You're going to see this pattern repeated over and over up until today. That's what it's all about. Uh, I've already covered this. Five pages of notes here, and we're through one already. Wow. Let's back this up a little bit. Genesis 41. Genesis 41. And here I want uh, verse 8. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof and Pharaoh told them his dream but there was none that could interpret them to Pharaoh. Who did Pharaoh, the Mitzriamite, look to? He looked to magicians, to sorcerers. He did not look God. In other words, the line of Canaan as expressed, or the line of Mitzrium perhaps, as expressed in Pharaoh, was idolatrous, did not know the true God. Now let's examine Egypt here for a moment. Why did God tell Abraham that I will send your people into captivity for 400 years? He was going to make them a mighty and great nation. Well, why plan ahead of time that they're going into captivity? Does that make any sense? If they're going to be blessed all the way through, there had to be a test. There had to be an awakening. There had to be an acknowledgement of something. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had obeyed God, okay, for the most part. They made mistakes, but so what? They kept their relationship right with God and put Him first in their lives tithed to him, obeyed him, did everything he said. Now, Joseph was born and he was sent down. He was tempted by Potiphar's wife, who was a Mithriamite, black woman. Then he married into Egypt, a women black woman, or woman. His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were probably half and half. So again, it was not race here that was the problem, or even intermarriage that was the problem, was it? Pharaoh was pagan. Joseph was sent down there, and in a very short order, became the leader of Mitzriam. Now, did Mitzrium turn to God? No. Did Joseph turn to pagan idols? No. God brought Jacob down there, Israel began to multiply, became millions of people, and they were subservient to the Egyptians. Well, what had they done? Jacob was obeying God, his sons were essentially obeying God, Joseph was obeying God, then why put those people into slavery? Because when they went to Egypt, it was not long until they began to forget God and serve the pagan Egyptian idols. And they got down to the point that after four hundred and thirty years, they didn't even know who the true God was. When Moses came and said, I'm going to God is going to deliver you, they said, Who's that? Which God? There's lots here. Which one is it? They hadn't a clue. They had gone so far into idolatry, they had forgotten all their history and everything about the true God. Now, God planned to make a great and mighty nation of them, right? But the same thing is true here that was true all the way back to Adam and Eve. They had to be shown who the true God was, and they had to be shown that idols are powerless. How did God begin the thing in Egypt? He sent Moses to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's magicians made snakes, and... Moses threw down the rod of God, of Aaron, and it became a snake and ate up those snakes. There's your clue. God was showing that he was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And those were satanic miracles that occurred with Pharaoh's magicians. Now, God then used the plagues on Egypt... To begin to destroy Mitzrium, who was idol worshippers, Israel had come to look up to Mitzrium because they were their bosses, and they had accepted their gods. Now God was going to destroy that people before the very eyes of Israel, and He did it by using Mitzrium's gods. They worshipped fleas and flies. They worshipped the things that crawled in and out of the river. And God plagued them with their own gods. The point here is what? Idolatry. Then, when God got ready to actually bring them out, see, they went through that whole thing to show that Egypt's gods were powerless to help them, and in fact, could kill them. And then God struck the firstborn of man and beast to show that he had the power to destroy the power of every family in Egypt and the whole Egyptian empire. And when he led them out, he led them out with a mighty hand, with power. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his armies who followed after them were swallowed up and drowned. Do you know how many Egyptians were killed by then? There was not a blade of grass, not a leaf on a tree. The firstborn were all dead. The cattle, the sheep, the animals were dead. And the whole army, the powerful young men of Egypt, were all dead. So by the time they came out of the sea on the far side and the seas closed over them, the Egyptian empire had been destroyed. And there's a verse I didn't look up that says, Do you not yet realize that Mithraim is destroyed? God was showing those people who God was. You shall know that I am the Eternal. And Egypt's gods are powerless. God wanted that lesson burned so deeply in those people that they would never forget who was God and who wasn't. It's the whole purpose of going to Egypt in the first place. I never realized that until we begin to look at this. Did they get it? God was going to show them who God was. He was going to give them a codified Ten Commandments, the first being, I am the first and great commandment, thou shalt not commit idolatry. So while Moses was going away to listen to the true God, Israel went right back to the Egyptian gods, made a golden calf, and began to dance and worship it. They went into idolatry almost immediately after coming out of Mitzrayim. What an incredible thing. And then they had to wander for 40 years until they were all dead because of the rebellion and the breaking of the first commandment primarily. Now in breaking that, they broke the other nine. I mean, but that's not the point here. The point is that this started with Satan, went through Adam and Eve, went through Noah's time, went right down through history over and over and over again, same old thing. Uh, let's pick it up in first Samuel seventeen I'm going to pick up a few loose ends of things I did not go to, not very many, because I want to keep moving so that this has a a movement through history is what I want to present today and let you see where it went in each and every age from Satan's first rebellion until today. First Samuel seventeen uh, down in verse. Uh, this is Goliath and David. Let's pick it up in verse forty-two. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? That was a name for uh, Gentiles at that time and in Christ's time. That you come to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now this Philistine, uh, Philistines were of Canaan. And he was a black man about nine and a half feet tall who worshipped his own gods. Okay? The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Come you to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. I am come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day will the Eternal deliver you into My hand, and I will smite you and take your head from you, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David was a man of God. David married some Gentile wives as well. But like Abraham... They did not turn him from God. When his deal with Uriah the Hittite, again, a black man, I don't know about Bathsheba for sure, some research shows that she was of Dan, so she may have been Semitic. But nonetheless, when David realized that he had killed that man and taken his only sheep, his wife, for himself, he repented from the heart in Psalm 51, turned back to God, Contrast Solomon. He married all kinds of women from all over the earth, and they took his heart away from God. Now David married women of different races. They did not take his heart from God. Solomon was a contrast. This is all again about who avoided the idolatry and turned to God, and who accepted the idolatry and turned away from God. There's your big lesson with David and Solomon. Moses, well, I'll flash back a little bit here in Numbers 12. I got a little ahead of the story, but here we have the case where Moses himself also had married an Ethiopian wife. Now this just got... uh, Uh, Miriam and Aaron all in a wad. They didn't like that at all. Numbers 12. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married. Now, remember, he had married Zipporah as well, who was also uh, a Canaanite, or whatever race, I mean, whatever tribe she was from. Was it Canaan or Mitzrayim? I forget anyway. But this is Ethiopian, probably of Cush, that he had married here. Now, Moses had showed he was going to follow God. That's the whole point. If it had been illegal, and perhaps it was to do that, Aaron and Miriam might have been right. That's something maybe Moses shouldn't have done, or at least in their mind he shouldn't have. Whether in God's or not is not completely clear here. They said, has the Eternal spoken only by Moses? Moses made a mistake here. So our opinion is just as good as Moses' opinion. Now, what were Miriam and Aaron doing? They were committing idolatry. God had put Moses in charge. Clearly, Moses was obeying God. He was following God. Now, the fact that he had intermarried wasn't anything different than Abraham had done and many others had done. But God had chosen him because he was a man of God, and he called Moses his friend and servant. So by telling God that he had made a mistake, that he might as well speak through them, they were putting their judgment, their opinion... And themselves above Moses, who had placed Mo- and God had placed Moses there, so in actuality they were placing themselves above God in His judgment. Their judgment of Moses, in their opinion, was greater than God's judgment of Moses, if you will. Samuel faced the same thing, didn't he? They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. That again was idolatry in the case of Samuel. Not Samuel himself, but those who had put him down when God had put him there. Did Samuel make mistakes? Certainly he did. Did Moses, Abraham, all of them make mistakes? Yes, they did, of various kinds. So did David. But they changed, they repented, they clung to God in spite of everything. Okay? Now, let's show uh, Exodus 18. I think this is an important thing to throw in here a little bit. Uh, (coughs) Exodus 18, verse 1. When Jethro, the priest of Midian... Now, Moses had married, remember, an Ethiopian woman. Jethro was his father-in-law. So Jethro was also a black man. Okay? Okay? Heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Eternal had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons... uh, Verse 5. No, wait, let's go to verse 3. And her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a strange land the name of the other was Eleazar, for the God of my father, said he, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Jethro was giving credit to Almighty God, and he was a black man. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness, where he encamped at the Mount of God. And he followed God, is the uptick of this. That's what I was getting at. Notice verse 12. Jethro became quite well known in Israel. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came. Aaron was the high priest. Now here's Jethro, a black man in Israel, offering a sacrifice to God, and Aaron showed up. And all the elders of Israel, all the elders of Israel, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, if there's any inclination for anyone to have racism and begin to talk badly about Ham or Canaan or Mitzrayim or whatever, it shows here that God is not a favorite of persons, or doesn't show that kind of favoritism, but God is willing to accept anyone who will accept Him as the true God. It didn't matter, did it? If Israelites went into idolatry, God condemned them and sent them into slavery. If Gentiles obey God, then God accepted them. That's something in God's character that goes back a long way. The whole key again is worship God or idolatry. Jethro worshiped God. All right, let's see. I kind of covered David and Solomon here. I wrote notes and I get ahead of myself. Uh, Let's go to Joshua 15. Joshua 15. And here, verse 63. As for the Jebusites, now they were of... Canaan, they were black people as well, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Now let's tie one together with that. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, as I had mentioned before, was named Jebus by the Jebusites. They founded Jerusalem apparently. Uh, God had that done before Abraham ever even got there because he was sent to another land across the ocean from Haran and uh, was to look for a city, as it says in Hebrews 11, and he found the city of the Jebusites. But as we covered the other day, the, after Babel, the confusion of the languages, uh, Canaan apparently went across the seas to the original promised land of the Garden of Eden. And then Abraham later, or Abram, was sent there uh, to take that land, and it was to be the promised land that God gave to Abraham. But the Canaanite was then in the land, as we read last night. Now, where was I going here? Another one in Joshua 24. Joshua 24, fading in and out here, I don't know what that is. Maybe I'll turn my head away. Maybe that's it. Uh, verse 11 I want. Um, and you went over Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you. Uh, drove out them from before you, even the t- kings of the Amorites, but not with the sword and not with your bow. So God did this, and there are several scriptures here. I think I wrote a couple of them down. Uh, yeah, First Kings 9. These Canaanites were in the land, <coughs> and what happened? They couldn't drive them out. Now notice First Kings 9, verse 20. And all the people that were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel also were not able utterly to destroy, upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bondage service or bond service to this day. So Israel enslaved the people of Canaan. Uh, I think I had one more maybe on that. Let's see here. Uh, maybe that's enough. There's another place where it talks about it, and it, it lists all the different tribes in that they enslaved either the Amorites or the Hittites or whoever were there. You can pick that story up. It isn't necessary to get all the detail anyway. But the point is, God had promised or told in the curse from Noah onto Canaan that they would serve Shem. Now, Israel had gone into captivity of the Mitzriamites, who were of Ham, black. And then when they came out of, the promise, out of Egypt, or Mitzrium, and went into the Promised Land, Canaan was there. So they went from a black society and culture that was idolatrous to another black society that was idolatrous. And God said, clean these idol worshippers out of the land. They didn't do it. And they enslaved them instead. So the prophecy and the curse of Noah came to pass there. And what happened? Did Israel's obedience and worship of God lead the Canaanites to repent and accept God in heaven as the true God? No, they began to keep and worship the idols of Canaan. So, bad overpowered good in terms of idolatry. Now, what did God eventually do? He sent Israel into captivity for breaking the first and great commandment. They accepted the idolatry of those peoples who turned their hearts away from God. So, let's go to Judges 1. Here we have verse 28, Judges 1, 28. It came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. This is the one I wanted. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Of the land, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became slaves. Neither did Asher drive them out. And on and on it goes here, down through verse 35. It just keeps talking about the different ones that they enslaved. All right. Uh, I know I had another place I was going here where it says they went into... Uh, oh, oh, Judges I wanted. I'm, I'm sorry, I was looking at kings. That's my problem. Judges 3, verse 5. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. So they intermarried. That wasn't really the problem. It was serving their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Eternal, and forgot the Eternal, their God, and served Balaam and the groves. This was the real problem. We'll find through history that Japheth went east and basically was a non-factor in terms of God. But God had chosen to work through Shem because Shem followed through with Noah's teaching. But the relationship between Canaan and Israel throughout history has always been close. There has been slavery both directions, and there has been intermarriage up to here, back and forth between Shem and Ham. But the overriding thing that keeps happening is that the Canaanites do not follow Shem's God, but Shem follows Canaan's God's. And that's what's spelled out here. The intermarriage led to idolatry. So God took them into captivity. It doesn't comment about the intermarriage except in terms of what it caused Israel to do. And we find that repeated over and over. So we're not talking here today about whether intermarriage is good, bad, or indifferent. That is not the subject. It's a totally, in some ways, a different subject. The subject today... It's what did it lead to in these instances, and that was idolatry. That is the first and great commandment. Multiple marriage, polygamy, intermarriage was allowed during this period of time between Noah and Christ, without any problem. It was according to the law of Moses. it was allowed. Idolatry has never been allowed. It has never been OK. See the difference? Let's go to the book of Ezra now. Now this again is another time of renewal after, these, after Israel had gone into the captivity of Babylon because of their sin and their idolatry. And they were returning from that at this point. So it was a time of renewal and of reestablishing. Let's go to Ezra 9. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. (coughs) Now, God had put them with the inhabitants of the land, hadn't he? It was the abominations and the false gods that were the problem, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the otherites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yes, the hand of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. So then Ezra rent his garments, (coughs) and he got very ashamed. Uh, Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. That was the key to the whole problem. Which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying the land of which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters to your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, (coughs) and has given us such deliverance as this, should we again, after all that our fathers have done, break your commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations, Would not you be angry with us till you had consumed us, like you did at the flood, uh, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are are before you in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before you because of this. And then they put away all the wives and those that were born of them in verse 3, the strange wives... Uh, at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law arise for this matter belongs to you we also will be with you be of good courage and do it and so they did but the problem here was again idolatry even coming out of captivity just as they had gone into idolatry immediately out of coming out of the captivity of Mitzrium now out of Babylon same old story didn't change. Go to Nehemiah 9. Uh, This is the same, essentially the same time after the building of the temple. Now it was a matter of building Jerusalem and the walls. But in chapter 9, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting. And the seed of Israel, verse 2, separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they recognized their sin. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Eternal, their God, one-fourth part of the day. And another-fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Eternal, their God. Uh, let's see. Verse 7, they're, they're talking here, standing up to bless God. And it says, You are the Eternal, the God who did choose Abram, and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name of Abraham and found his heart faithful before you, see, faithfulness of heart to God is the key here, and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites and the otherites, uh, to give it, I say, to his seed, and have performed your words, for you are righteous. God had kept up with his promise. Now they were looking back and seeing how Israel had not done so well. You did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And you showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and on all his servants. He's rehearsing the story that I described to you. Uh, You did divide the sea before them. They went through. Uh, You led them by the cloud in verse 12. Came down to Mount Sinai in verse 13. You made your holy Sabbath known to them in verse 14. So you gave them your law. But, verse 16, they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to your commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But you are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsook them not. Then they made the golden calf and all that, Uh, rehearsing the whole story again. Uh, They went into the land of the Canaanite, verse 24, and possessed the land and subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land. And they had all these good things. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. Rebellion against God is what? It's idolatry and slew your prophets, which testified against them, to turn them to you. So anybody who tried to turn them from their idols and back to God was slain or imprisoned or ridiculed. And they worked great provocations. And yet God was merciful. Okay, enough of that story right there. Uh, there's a story of the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35, which I think is worth talking about. We're getting into the prophecies now. Now, consider the history here of how from Canaan, through Ham, through Mitzrium, through uh, ba- basically the black race that was uh, parallel with Israel, their lives were intertwined. They had gone into idolatry. The same sin of Satan and Balaam, Uh, worshiping themselves. uh, Again, Nimrod and Semiramis, the first mother and child, that was later transferred to Christianity with Mary and Jesus, mother and child, and they brought pagan Christmas and Easter right on through into so-called Christianity, which is also idol worship and worship of Satan. All these Protestants in the Catholic churches worship Satan, and they don't even know whom they worship. That is how clever this deception has been. They're just like the Pharisees. You worship no, you know not what, and you're of your father, the devil. Well, this has all led to this. Now, let's understand something here, though. Again, as I showed you, Jethro decided he would turn. Now, that's rare, wasn't it? The rest of the ites would always go into idolatry. Israel would follow. A few strong men stood up and worshipped God in spite of everything going on around them. That may have been part of the test. You know, God could have sent Israel into the promised land. He could have driven all those people out ahead of them. They would have never had to interface with them. They could have been all by themselves to worship God. What kind of test would that be? Not near as good a test is, will you follow God in spite of everything around you? Does that sound familiar today? But here you have the story of the Rechabites. Now the Rechabites uh, were uh, descended of he- Hobab, who was an Ethiopian, or he's a brother-in-law of the. I'll get it straight in a minute. He was related to Jethro and the Ethiopian woman that Moses had married. Okay? But these Rechabites had looked to their background and Jethro's and his family's obedience to God. And they had made a vow that they would not drink wine. And then they were told, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine. But they said, we have obeyed, verse 8, the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents. So they obeyed their father, who goes back to Jethro's line. And God hearkened to them. Verse 18, Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, By my name, God says, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. What an incredible reward God gave a Gentile and a Gentile people here because they obeyed in spite of everything all their people were doing and in spite of all the rebellion and idolatry that Israel was doing, a Gentile showed up and obeyed and God said, You will never go without a man to stand by before Me forever. Wow! Does God reward obedience no matter where it is? And disobedience and idolatry no matter where it is? Are we beginning to see a pattern here? We'll see that repeated by Christ in a little bit. um uh, Let's go to Zechariah 14. I'm jumping a little bit ahead when Christ is on the earth, and I'll come back in a minute, but I want to point something out here. Now, this talks about when Christ is on the earth. He split the Mount of Olives in chapter 14, and everybody will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this one had my head scratching a little bit uh, a week ago. It shall be that whoso will not come up all the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. What is not coming up before to worship the King, the Lord of hosts? That's idolatry. Because he will be on the earth and he will have said, everybody come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you don't, for any reason, that is idolatry. You're putting something ahead of Christ. And if the family of Mitzrium go not up and come not that that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the eternal will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now we've had this relationship between Shem and Ham all this time, and and, and Ham had always gone into idolatry. So Japheth is kind of out of it. God keeps using Shem and Ham together because of the parallel of their lives. This shall be the punishment of Mitzrium and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness to the eternal. So what is God going to begin to do at the beginning of the millennium? Christ is going to stamp out idolatry. And all bells will ring of holiness to the eternal. And if the Egyptian wants to cling to his idols, he won't have any rain. Because that is not the political correctness of that day. Then he says, yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the eternal of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the eternal of hosts. Now, is that eternal judgment against Hamitic Canaan? Canaan? Almost sounds like it on the surface, doesn't it? But it's not. Now, it says, if Mithraim come not, and the Canaanite will no longer be there, read Revelation 21 and 22. It talks about when the new Jerusalem is here, and the righteous will be in, and those who are outside will be those that love and make a lie. All the unclean and the filthy will be outside. They will not be allowed to be inside. So in order to come inside, you have to repent. And when you repent, and they will be under the new covenant then, right? It won't be the old covenant. It'll be the new covenant. What does the new covenant include? It includes... Israelite or Gentile, anyone on the face of the earth who will repent and turn to God. Then they are no longer a Canaanite. Then they are a spiritual Israelite. There is neither Greek nor Jew in the Spirit of God. It does not say that there will not be an Egyptian or a Canaanite in terms of a being there but the Canaanite gods and Egyptian gods are going to be repented of and Christ is going to be accepted as the true God and they'll keep the first and great commandments and they won't any longer be a Canaanite they will be a spiritual Israelite and as such will be allowed in the temple now if they don't repent they won't be allowed in but neither will an Israelite or anybody else who doesn't repent there's a message here. Put God first and you will be allowed in the holy city. If you don't, you won't be in. And the Canaanites and the Egyptians, Mitzriamites, cannot bring their false gods into the temple of God. It won't happen anymore. It's all over. Repent or else. Zephaniah 1.4. Back a few pages. <clears throat> this is a time when God is going to begin to take a hand in world affairs. Verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven, the fishes of the sea, and the stumbling blocks for the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, says the Eternal. I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah. So Israel gets hit in the neck too, right? Now we know from Ezekiel 5 and other places, 90% of Israel is going to be destroyed in the end time. The Great Tribulation and those things that follow. So this is not a racist thing at all. We've been talking a lot about Ham and Canaan. Why? Because I wanted to know what Egypt meant or symbolized in prophecy. Now we've already gone into Babylon, haven't we? We spent about 30 sermons on it instead of 7. Showing how evil Israel was. And how this nation right here that we are in is symbolic of Babylon. Babylon. Babylon's about as bad as you can get. So we jumped on ba- on uh, Israel and Babylon a whole bunch in that series. Now we're jumping on Ham and Canaan a whole bunch in this one, and Japheth is just Gog and Magog and the hordes of the East who are totally godless in the first play place and don't even come into play until at least the millennium and mostly in the Great White Throne Judgment. I'll stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Idol worship is the main thing God is going to be after. Baal goes all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis. And the name of the Kimmerims with the priests. Now, the Kimmerims are the Kerethites of the Old Testament. 2 Kings 23, I won't go there. But they were Philistines, they were black priests, but they were idolatrous priests, and that was the key. That's why he mentions here in Zephaniah, when God takes a hand at the end, he's going to cut off those that represent idolatry. And the Karathites or the Kimerims represented idolatry, so they have to go. Zephaniah 2, verse 5. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Karathites, whom we just addressed. The word of the Eternal is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy you, that there shall be no inhabitant. And then he he hits on Judah and Israel, Moab, Ammon. They'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. These people all breaking the first and great commandment and serving other gods. That is the key. Now when we read some of those Scriptures about the end time and Cyrus and all those things we've talked about that the church is involved in, what does God keep saying over and over? What did He say all the way through Ezekiel? Dozens of times. They shall know that I am the Lord. That's what the world has forgotten since Adam and Eve. And God is going to straighten that out. Idolatry will go. Matthew 15, verse 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, you son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her, Not a word. Didn't even acknowledge she was there. She was a Canaanite, a black woman. Um, Well, my eye won't fall on where I was. Not a word, verse 23. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. So he, he didn't even acknowledge her, and he told his disciples, You send her away. Get her out of here. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now this goes all the way back. It sounds very harsh, doesn't it? But let's understand. Shem was trying to obey God, and Canaan was going the other direction, into idolatry, in the personage of Canaan, and of Nimrod, and of Semiramis, and essentially... Most people ever after that. And God had chosen to work through Shem, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, Moses, and had brought it down through Israel. God had made Israel the example nation that should be the ones on earth obeying Him. And they went up and down in that, mostly down. A lot of it was at the influence of the Canaanites and Mitzrayimites around them. So, if God was going to get this straightened out, He was still going to work through the line of Israel. That's why Christ came as a Jew, not of some other race. Because God was going, and at times He almost gave up. I will. Make Israel an example to the world. They were his best shot, bad as they were. It's all he had. Japheth was way out there, and Ham had gone after other gods. Israel kind of up and down, back and forth, wishy-washy, not much count. But he had determined that's the way he was going to work. So this was not racism here. This was what God had in mind to do. And He was working through Israel and worked primarily through Israel to draw His disciples, later apostles, begin the New Testament church. And then, once He had somebody going the right way, like Stephen who preached to the Jews and was stoned by them, but he preached righteousness and serving Almighty God. And once some of that was done and they had it working finally that mankind by the Spirit of God could and would serve God, then God invited the, Egypt, the Gentiles of all stripe into the church so that they would be neither Hebrew nor Greek. God had a plan. He was working out all along. But He had to get somebody to obey. And put him first. And he had a tough time doing it with Israel. They were stubborn and stiff necked like backsliding heifers. Stoned the prophets. Anybody that told them, serve God and not Baal, and out came the rocks. Always that way. Now he had mercy in this case, like with the Rechabites, like with Jethro. She said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Emmanuel answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith, being unto you even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. She showed faith and Christ rewarded it, even though he was not working there yet. That doesn't mean he was never going to work there. In fact, it would only be a short time from this episode that he would work there when Paul and Peter introduced the Gentiles into the church. Things were going the right way again. Now there's one more example I might use here, and I don't know whether it's a true one or not. But remember one of Christ's twelve disciples was Simon the who? The Canaanite. Now the word in the Hebrew in the Bible is Canaan in Greek or something like that, which was taken from Canaan or from Canaan seed. Uh, I looked it up in the commentaries because I wondered about it, and he says, "Well, there is a problem here." Now they don't really explain what the problem is, but they say there's a problem here because no one wanted to accept the fact that Christ might have included a Canaanite as one of his disciples. Now he did not offer membership in the church and the spiritual Israel until shortly hereafter. So I don't know uh, for sure if Simon was indeed a bloodline Canaanite. Uh, There's other places they say he was Simon the Zealot, or from Zelotes, uh, meaning zealous. Uh, I don't know. Now, perhaps, since there was so much intermarriage between Ham and Shem in Jerusalem, it could have been that he was mixed and he might have even been part Israelite, but he still showed the some elements of Ham in his physiognomy or his color or something. Uh, and therefore was called a Canaanite, because if any of that showed, he would have been called that instead of Israel, just like it is today. Now, I don't know what the real answer to that is. My questions about it are these... Why didn't the, Jew, the Pharisees and everybody jump all over him if one of his disciples was indeed a Gentile or part Gentile? Uh, why was not there an issue ever made of it? There was Bartholomew and Simon, and I think one other that, that's the only, when they were named disciples, that's the only thing that's said about them. That's it. Nothing more. He led through James, Peter, James, John, Jude, and some of the others, but those were never mentioned again. Now maybe if he was indeed a Canaanite, and I'm not saying that he wasn't, he might have been. Maybe he was there with them, but may not have ever said much. And since there were so many people that tended to follow Christ, maybe the Pharisees never made an issue of it. I don't know. But I can't imagine the Pharisees not making an issue of anything they could find. So, was he a Canaanite? I think it's a little bit unclear, but in my mind, it's fine if he was, because God was just about to invite the Gentiles in. He did not make Simon the Zealot or the Canaanite, whichever he was, a leader of the Gentiles. He gave that job to Paul, primarily because Paul was such a biased uh, Pharisee in the past. And he had to repent of all that. Get struck down and be taught for three and a half years. And then Christ said, did you get it, Paul? Oh, okay, I'll go preach to the Gentiles. This took some doing. Hebrews 11, Rahab the harlot, a Canaanite woman in black, is a part of the 144,000 because she was faithful to the people of God. She recognized the true God through those men and through Israel. In spite of her sin, in spite of her profession, it didn't matter. She put idolatry and the worship of the Canaanite gods. She put herself in the line of fire to be killed if they had found her out. She put the spies from Israel, the servants of God, ahead of her own life. And God saved her and called, it, called and put her name in with the faithful in Hebrews 11 who will be in the first resurrection. Now that's a beautiful story right there, isn't it? Let's go to Ezekiel 16. I believe I actually am going to finish this today. Ezekiel 16. <clears throat> now, we've already talked about Israel being today, or the United States, uh, being symbolic of all Babylon. Now, Babylon is Satan's system that came out of Babel through Nimrod, and it is diabolical, it is a worldwide system, but America is at the center of it. We are the great whore to be destroyed in Revelation 18 and 19. And God addresses us as such in Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the eternal came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, tell them, thus says the eternal God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. God is saying here, I can't tell you from the people of the land. You look just like them. Now, they didn't. They were Semitic and white. The Amorite and the Hittite were black. So to look at them standing on the street corner, you would know the difference, wouldn't you? Quite clearly. Now, Israel was related, if you go back to Ephraim and Manasseh, at least those two sons, Uh, And there had been a lot of intermarriage, but Israel was still essentially white, and the Amorite and the Hittite had been black. So, if looking at them, God couldn't tell the difference, what was the difference? It wasn't the physical God was talking about. He couldn't tell the difference in practice, in religion, in idolatry, which was which. The Amorite and the Hittite don't look like you. You look like them. This is a problem. That's why they went into captivity. And this is the chapter where he labels Israel the great whore. Let's go down to verse 8. Now, when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, the time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the eternal God, and you became mine. God saw them as harlots, worshiping everything spiritually except God. And He forgave that and said, You became mine. Just mine. Not belonging to all those that you had been giving yourself to. Verse 17. You have also taken your fair jewels, of, and, and they didn't accept that, of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made to yourself images of men, and did commit whoredoms with them. So they made their own idols, and committed adultery against God. Verse 28. You have played the whore also with the Assyrians, because you were insatiable. Yes, you have played the harlot with them, and yet could not be satisfied. So, there is a relationship also with Assyria in Shem, and Assyria is at least part Semitic, I think, and maybe part Japhetic, but uh, there was a captivity and a destruction by Nebuchadnezzar and by the Assyrians on Israel. And yet, (coughs) Israel played the harlot with Assyria. Hosea says that Ephraim, like a silly dove, will go to the Assyrian in the end time. Into idolatry. Not necessarily just a military pact, but into idolatry of the Assyrian people. You have, moreover, multiplied your fornication in all the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, and yet you were not satisfied therewith. So... Israel had joined together with Assyria and with Canaan in ungodly, idolatrous relationships. Now keep in mind those three, because that's going to come up again in a little bit. How weak is your heart, says the eternal God, seeing that you do all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman. Israel was to be the example And yet they had been just as bad or worse than the heathen around them. And God said, you were worse. What an indictment. Now let's go to Isaiah 19. Here is one of the key end-time prophecies about uh, Mitzriam or Egypt, and perhaps it refers to all the sons of Ham. And this is one of the ones that I kind of wondered about, among others, and I won't go to all of them, but you'll find the same thing wherever we go. So let's look at Isaiah 19. Now this is a section in here which has a burden against uh, Moab, against Babylon in verse 13. Moab, let's see, the daughter of Zion in 16. Uh, Ethiopia in 18, which is probably Cush. And uh, maybe we ought to take... Let's look at that a little bit, too. I hadn't thought of 18, but let's pick it up here a little bit. Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sends ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters. So here again, you have sea travel by uh, Ethiopians or black people. To a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. So Ethiopia would be knocked down. God said that uh, there would be a curse on Canaan and upon Ham, really. uh, Not all the sons of Ham in that case, but Canaan. But Mitzrium never obeyed. Canaan never obeyed, just as Israel never very often obeyed. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth see you when He lifts up an ensign on the mountains and when He blows a trumpet hear you. So Ethiopia had been disobedient too. But listen when God sets something up. There's something you might need to hear. For so the Eternal said to me, I will take my rest and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect (coughs) and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together to the fowls of the mountains and the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. Pretty heavy prophecy against Ethiopia here. In that time, when that happens, when that kind of destruction and punishment comes, shall the present be brought unto the eternal of hosts of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning uh, heretofore, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the eternal of hosts, the Mount Zion. So these people are going to be scattered and peeled, your skin peeled off. Until they come to Mount Zion. So, the punishment works, doesn't it? Now let's look at 19. Particularly, I, I looked at this because we were going to Egypt specifically or Mitzrium. The burden of Mitzrium. Behold, the eternal rides upon a swift cloud and shall come into, into Mitzrium. And the idols of Mitzrium shall be moved at his presence. What's the first thing he addresses? Idolatry. They're God's. The things that they worship are going to begin to shake a little bit. And the heart of Mithraim shall melt in the midst of it. It melted back in the time that Israel came out of Egypt, didn't it? And they finally said, Get out of here. Go worship your God. Please go. Go now. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And they shall fight everyone against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt, what is the spirit of Egypt? Idolatry. Shall fail in the midst thereof. So God says, just like it was when Israel was in captivity there, I'm going to do it again. And I will destroy the council thereof. And they shall seek. What will they do? Same thing they did in Pharaoh's day. They called the magicians and the sorcerers and made snakes and say, Aha, there you go. Our gods are very powerful. Oh, what happened to my snakes? Well, Moses Rod ate them. They'll seek to the idols, the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. They'll go to their gods for answers. And the Mitzreamites will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, says the eternal the Lord of hosts. Now this was written about seven hundred BC, long after. Uh, the things that happened in Egypt, okay? So this was a future prophecy. And the water shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up, and they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. Makes me again wonder if we're not talking about something much bigger than a little sand spit with one river running through it. The fishers shall mourn and all that, and they that work in fine flax, verse 9, and they that weave networks shall be confounded. So all through their society, in other words, they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that makes sluices and ponds for fish. Verse 11, surely the princes of Zoan, and that's of Mithraim, are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors, that is the wizards and the magicians and so on, <coughs> has become brutish. How say you to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? How can you say you know anything when it's being destroyed before your very eyes? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Where are the idols that are going to save you? And let them tell you now, and let them know what the eternal of hosts has purposed upon Mitzriam. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also seduced Mitzrayim. Even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. The Eternal has mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof. Who's the perverse spirit? Satan the devil and the magicians that follow him. And they have caused Mitzriam to err in every work thereof as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. That's how a drunk man is when he's trying to find the car and he can't find his keys even. Neither shall there be any work for Egypt. Which the head or tail, branch or rush may do. You're going to be in poverty and destruction and no work, no economy, nothing. In that day shall Egypt be like women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He shakes over it. Is God going to be saying, I am God, and your gods are not worth anything? And the land of Judah shall be a terror to Egypt. Everyone that makes mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the eternal of hosts, which he has determined against it. What part of Judah? Will it be the spiritual Jews at this time as the last in time fulfillment of this history turned prophecy? The rest of Judah is going to be being destroyed, isn't it? It may be us they are afraid of. Because we will have the power of Almighty God, and no one else will. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the eternal of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. They're going to begin to swear to God. That's what this destruction is going to bring. In that day shall there be an altar to the eternal in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Eternal. So it started out with idolatry. God smashes and destroys like He did when Egypt came out. And suddenly they decide, I think I'll build an altar to God. Wow! What a turnaround. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness to the Eternal of hosts in the land of Mitzriam, For they shall cry to the Eternal because of the oppressors, and He shall send them a Savior and a Great One, and He shall deliver them. And the Eternal shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yes, they shall vow a vow to the Eternal and perform it. What a change in attitude and approach. And the Eternal shall smite Egypt, He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return, even to the Eternal. And He shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Mitzriumites shall serve with, not to, but with the Assyrians. Now listen to this. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt, and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. The three that had committed the harlotries together that we saw in Ezekiel 16, now all belong to God, and there are a third, a third, and a third in the land. What a beautiful story. It's all going to turn out right. God is going to destroy the idols of the peoples and the Assyrian who has been the rod of God's anger and the Mitzriamite or the people of Ham essentially probably overall speaking here are going to be God's people. And Israel who was promised the inheritance will receive that. But they'll all be together and, above all things, they've been together before. What's the difference? They'll be together godly without idolatry. Idolatry is the problem and has always been the problems. All mankind has sinned, all down through history. So the symbolism and the prophecies about Mitzriam, Egypt, and perhaps of Ham altogether, is idolatry. So when God says, go not into Egypt, don't go into idolatry. There's a place that says, Don't go into Egypt, I forget exactly where it is, Jeremiah maybe. It might be in Isaiah, where it says, Don't go to the Egyptian for protection. All right? Would we as Americans go to, let's say, Ghana or um, pick a place where Ham is today, southern India, for protection? I don't think so. Don't we have the military? Now, you're going to see something turn around right here in front of you and don't run out of here. But we represent Babylon in this country. We are a, an Israelite nation who is knuckled under and serves Babylon in the form of Washington, D.C. and all the politicos that come out of it. We saw a film the other night about the Greek and the Roman and the Baal and everything else that is, <coughs> that is Washington, D.C. <coughs> laid out with the pentagrams of Satan. So God calls this nation Babylon and calls it the great whore that the beast and the false prophet will destroy. So, Israel, Ephraim, represent to God Babylon in the end-time prophecies, or the leader of Babylon, if you will. Now, within Washington, you have Baal, and you have all of those things that have come all the way down from... Nimrod and Semiramis, and you saw the little red hats that they were wearing, the Santa Claus hats, on the idols in Washington, D.C. Who would we, Israel, look to for protection? South Africa? Tanzania? Egypt? Ethiopia? Libya? I don't think so. There'd be no inclination to do that. What protection's there? Sorry to tell you this, people of Israel, but God's talking to us. He's talking to the government there who has the gods of Egypt. Our own government represents sin. It represents idolatry. It is godless, and it's promoting destruction of the family, homosexuality, other gods. It's trying to get rid of Christianity because they must think that they worship the true God, which they don't. But they're trying to get rid of every vestige of God in this country. It's a huge movement. When God says, go not to Egypt, He's telling you and me, don't go to those people who rule Israel. For godliness, because they are idolaters. We wouldn't even think of going to Libya, but we would think of asking Washington to protect us from all this evil that's coming down on this nation. We would look to the leaders of this world. The whole world then is going to come under Satan, the original idolater, the original sinner. And God has used Israel to picture Babylon. He has used Egypt to picture sin. And we have imbibed of the idolatry of Egypt throughout our history. And we must repent of that. It isn't the black people that are the problem. It's idolatry that's the problem. (coughs) God has now invited black and yellow and white To become a third, a third, and a third, if you will, in God's church. And he has said, if any people of any nation will repent and worship me as the living God of heaven and earth and creation, I will let them in my church. They will neither be Greek nor Jew. And they will be used to set an example for the rest of the world as a light set on a hill that you can come out of idolatry and worship God and receive salvation. That's what this is all about. So when it says, go not to Egypt, it means go not into sin and idolatry, but keep the first and great commandment and worship God in heaven above everything. That is the message to you and me. And we're the only ones on earth that will listen to it. And we are responsible for putting aside the sin of idolatry, which also breaks the rest of the commandments, and to serve God with all our heart. And He makes the Sabbath a test commandment and says, Get your foot off the Sabbath and you will be the healers of the breach. There's been a breach between God and all people. There have been breaches and slavery back and forth between Ham and Shem. Bad relationships. And with Assyria. With wars. Back and forth. And God says they are going to be three together. All worshiping me. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. What a wonderful story this is going to turn out to be. It isn't our color that makes us spiritual whores. It's our conduct. It is our idolatry. It is our idolatry that causes sin and brands us the same as God branded Canaan and Pharaoh and all of those who served idols. So when God tells us in the days of Unleavened Bread come out of sin. And Egypt is the symbol. It is idolatry that is the problem. It was not the people of Egypt. Those people who drowned in that Red Sea are going to come up in the great white throne judgment and be taught to put their gods away and worship the eternal true God. And so will they repent and be ushered into the kingdom of God, probably including Pharaoh, Because it's not a race that is the problem, it's a commandment that is the problem. And that is why Egypt, which was highly idolatrous, is pictured as sin during these seven days. And why in the prophecies we're told, don't go to Egypt. Because if we go to anyone for help, for protection, for guidance, for leadership... Other than Almighty God in heaven, we are committing idolatry, and God will not put up with that. And we will go into tribulation and die there and probably lose eternal salvation if we do that. It's all the marbles now. We're going for broke, brethren. You understand. Go to God. Put Him first. And everything that you say and think and do, and put everything you can think of that influences you away from God that is in the society and culture around us, away from you. Because that is the sin of Egypt. Anything that leads you to Sabbath breaking, idolatry, adultery, fornication, lying, cheating, stealing, covetousness, or any of those things, has to be put away. Because every last one of them is a breaking of the first commandment. Worship God and no other gods before Him. Do I need to go into all the things in our society that are leading us away from God that represent sin, idolatry in Egypt? I don't think so. You're intelligent people. You need to examine your lives. And see what you might be putting ahead of Almighty God. Because this is a critical issue and He is about to shake this world of the foundations and kill more than 90% of everyone that walks the face of the earth this day. That those who remain will finally have gotten the point. They shall know that I am the Eternal.